You're listening to Girls Got Game, Episode 2, From Towers to Stilettos to Jiggle Physics. Humans have been playing games since the dawn of history. Ancient games like backgammon and chess have survived to be played competitively to this day. It was only to be expected that as technology advanced, so too would the games we play to make use of said technology. As mentioned last time, the origin of video games is frequently traced back to 1958, when nuclear physicist and Trinity test witness Willie Higginbottom had a revelation. Higginbottom realized that the majority of science exhibits in museums at the time were non-interactive. So to counteract this, he created a game that replicated the rules of tennis. Players could manipulate dials to move virtual paddles to block and hit a ball as it moved as though affected by artificial gravity. It was displayed on the screen of an oscilloscope. Though a far cry from the computer games we know today, Tennis for Two was a key step down the path to their development. I'm Riley Fitz, and welcome to Girls Got Game. In this episode, I will discuss the first video games and how women came to be portrayed within them. This episode features clips from interviews conducted with various scholars and experts in this field, such as Professor Amanda Cody of the University of Oregon's School of Journalism and Communication. In 1972, a company emerged out of the growing interest in video games. Atari, founded by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, would go on to be one of the major video game industry pioneers before taking a heavy hit in the 1983 video game's market crash. But in the beginning, Atari made waves with the creation of Pong. At first, it was played on a coin-operated arcade machine, jump-starting a craze for ball-and-paddle video games that would go on to oversaturate the market and lead to that aforementioned video game's market crash. Pong later released for the Magnavox Odyssey, the first home video game console. The populace was hooked. As mentioned in the last episode, the invention of the microprocessor streamlined the creation of the computer, and with the advent of the first relatively affordable personal computers, games made their leap from arcade machines to consoles to computers. Following Pong came a slew of other games from several different companies. Space Invaders, Asteroids, Gunfight, But it wasn't until 1980 that one of the industry's veritable headliners and mascots was released for the arcade. Pac-Man, created by Toru Iwatani and released by Namco. A year later, a spin-off Pac-Man game came out, Ms. Pac-Man. As Anita Sarkeesian states in Tropes vs. Women in Video Games, quote, Ms. Pac-Man was not only one of the first playable female characters, but she also holds the distinction of being the original Ms. Male character in video games." End quote. Ms. Pac-Man is visually distinguished from Pac-Man by a red collection of pixels that vaguely resembles a bow, as well as lipstick and eyelashes. One of the next women to be portrayed in games was Pauline, later known as Princess Peach, in Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong also released in 1981. Pauline serves as the motivator for the player, 
personified in-game as Jumpman and later famous plumber Mario, to navigate the obstacles Donkey Kong lays out for him. The goal is to retrieve Pauline from the clutches of Jumpman's simian villain, Donkey Kong. The goal of the subsequent Mario Brothers games, which became a world-renowned and beloved franchise, was then solidified. Rescue Princess Peach from whatever enemy, usually Bowser, had snatched her this time. Princess Zelda of the Legend of Zelda series has a similar portrayal. Link, the protagonist of these games, is frequently pressed into service to rescue her. While Zelda has autonomy as her alter ego, Sheik, almost the instant she slips back into her Zelda persona, she's victimized again. Metroid, on the other hand, subverts this. You play as an androgynous individual in a mech suit throughout the entirety of the game. If you beat the game in under three hours, Samus, the protagonist, will remove the suit of armor and reveal that she is a woman. This is the first instance of an autonomous female protagonist in a video game. This is slightly overshadowed, though, by the fact that if you beat the game in under an hour, she will strip down to a bikini beneath her suit. I spoke to video game archivist David Carter about the advertisement and marketing of early video games. When um, they were trying to sell these expensive home gaming systems, um, they were marketed to families. And if you look at the advertising for like your Intellivisions or your Atari consoles and things like that, you'll see it was usually a family sitting around playing the game. It was a mother, a father, a son, and a daughter all all playing the game. Um, and granted, it was a white <laughs> it was a white family that was doing the playing there. Um, but there's a strong marketing for these things as something that would bring the family together. Um, as opposed to the marketing that you started to see in the late 80s and early 90s, which is this is a thing for for young men to be to be doing. Um, and I think part of that was was Nintendo, um, the Nintendo influence. Um, and and so but the, the interesting thing is that very, very early on, marketing only to to young men was not seen as a way to sell these game systems because they were expensive and young men didn't have the money to spend on that. You, you had to sell it to the families. And in a lot of these cases, the mother was in fact the gatekeeper of what, of what large amounts of money got spent on um, in, in the family. Not always, not every family was the same, but you certainly could not ignore the fact that, that mom would get to weigh in. And what is important to mom, mom is family time is important to mom. Like, it's a different kind of gendered um, marketing. So, but what you but, so what you don't see in the marketing of those early games is the more um, sexual connotations and things like that. That you you don't see the women in skimpy clothing and, and things like that. See developed um, in the '90s for video game marketing, um, and that's something that I don't think has really been explored a lot. Um, from from academics and, and looking at the, the differences of, of the, as opposed to the content of the games, the way that the games were marketed. This sexualization of women in video games quickly became commonplace. A quote from Women in Gaming, 100 Professionals of Play, by Megan Marie, explains why. Quote, By the time games became an entertainment staple, they were considered toys, and toys were sold in gendered sections of stores. Marketers had limited budgets and needed to focus on key demographics. 
the numbers showed that video gamers were mostly male and the marketing followed suit accordingly. While Atari ads in the early 1980s had pictured young girls and their mothers, advertisements industry-wide transitioned to appeal to boys and men, including the overt use of hypersexualized women as marketing tools. This practice only intensified as games became more successful and violent in nature, continuing well into the modern age." End quote. I reached out to another expert to discuss this in March of 2019. Um, my name is Amanda Cody. I'm an assistant professor of media studies and game studies at the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. My research is on gender identity in video games. I'm currently working on my first book, which is tentatively titled Gaming Sexism. It deals with how female gamers navigate game culture and game communities since the rise of casual games has ostensibly opened those up to new types of players. So how have women been represented in video games? So a couple of researchers have done content analyses of video games where they measure who gets represented and who doesn't. And their conclusions have consistently said that female characters are underrepresented. They're very rarely playable characters. They tend to be secondary characters or sidekicks. When they are represented, they tend to be represented in specific limited ways. They tend to be highly hypersexualized, so with visible boobs, a lack of realistic clothing, um, unrealistic body proportions, things like that. And so the concern of these representations and their limitations is then what impact is that going to have? So how has representation improved? Has it improved? There are some improvements. Overall, the field of video games is still highly limited, but some characters that uh, are more hopeful have come out in recent years. So when I interview female gamers, some of the characters that they continually go back to as improved representations are the new Lara Croft. So original versions of Lara Croft were her tank top and her short shorts raiding tombs in the jungle. The new version of Lara Croft has had uh, a more realistic body design and more realistic clothing for the scenario she's in. And so players have really appreciated that. Another example that comes to mind quite frequently is the Mass Effect series. So in Mass Effect, you can choose to play as either a female character or a male character, and the storyline is the same for either option. It doesn't, you're not limiting your choices by choosing one or the other. Both are strong, both are powerful, both have a lot of agency, and both get realistic armor. So those are examples of some improvement we've seen. At the same time, we do still have games where when you put the armor on a female character, it's a bikini, and when you put that same piece of armor on the male character, it's an actual normal suit of armor. So there are still some limitations of tending to use female characters in ornamental ways rather than in meaningful ways. Hmm. Say, say you have a character who is both badass and sexy. Yes, and when I speak to female gamers, very few of them object to sexualization. A lot of them find it frequently empowering to play a pretty attractive female character who also kicks ass. Their objection is when that's the only option they have, when they can only play as a hypersexualized, underdressed character. Sometimes they want to play as somebody who's just wearing normal clothes and jeans and things like that. So it's not that sexualization is bad. Again, that good-bad representation isn't necessarily the best question. 
it's when you don't have any other options and you're limited to only playing a certain type of representation. Even though attitudes towards the representation of women are starting to shift, the sexualization of their characters has not slowed. The advancements in technology have allowed modifications to be made to games by fans. A mod, short for modification, is a fan-made addition to a game that is often available for download off of the internet. Dedicated fans will break down the game's source code and manipulate it to create something new. In some games, this can result in new levels and environments, like id Software's 1993 release of Doom, which started the modding craze, or Valve's Portal, released in 2007. Modding has led to the creation of new games, such as in the case of Valve's Team Fortress 2, which had its origin in the original Team Fortress game, and a mod based in the Quake game rendering engine. Mods can, most simply, result in new outfits and appearances for existing characters in existing games. When the player has control over the game and its content, this can result in some interesting additions. Most, like those frequently found in the Skyrim community, include improvements to character appearances. Unlike in the Skyrim community, this has resulted in the creation of nude mods. For later Tomb Raider releases, one can find several open-source mods online that allow the player to remove Lara Croft's clothes, finally giving credence to a popular rumor that circulated during the time of the first Tomb Raider. This rumor stipulated that a bug existed that would allow you to play as Lara Croft while naked. This isn't terribly surprising. Fans and fandom culture are a force to be reckoned with, just as racy fan art can be found online by the unsuspecting, or suspecting, internet user, other sexualized expressions of fandom pop up too. This is well within the right of fans. It's permissible for fans to create in this way because their actions are not representative of a major company or industry. It's a different story if a major games company were to do it instead. Many games, like those in the Dead or Alive, Mortal Kombat, Soul Calibur, and Street Fighter series, come under fire for the use of jiggle physics. Jiggle physics is the application of a property of movement based on in-game gravity to a female character's bust. Basically, it's animating a female character's boobs. It started in 1992 with a game called Fatal Fury 2, then expanded out to become a widespread trope. There's a fine line to walk between natural and unnatural movement of the chest before it becomes ridiculous. More often than not, the effect is over-exaggerated and, by many female players, unappreciated. Then there's the sexualization of armor and other outfits as applied only to female characters, as Professor Cody explained. For instance, some games will depict the men in realistic armor, full breastplates, gauntlets, and other protective gear, but will depict the women in armor that functions more as lingerie. This can be seen in Mortal Kombat, Soul Calibur, Final Fantasy, and dozens of other series. One example comes from Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, with a character called Quiet. She is infected with a parasite that forces her to breathe through her skin. So, the more clothing she wears makes it harder for her to breathe. So, instead of wearing clothes, she walks around a battlefield alongside men in full fatigues wearing nothing but an unsupportive bra, skimpy panties, and see-through fishnet stockings. Other common configurations of armor 
include armor that covers the chest but leaves the belly and upper thighs bare, armor that only covers the chest and shoulders and leaves the upper back and stomach uncovered, a breastplate with a hole cut in the middle to display a female character's cleavage, and skirts with the front cut out to display the character's underwear. Some examples of this can be found in the Final Fantasy series, World of Warcraft, and the Soul Calibur series. Judith, from Tales of Vesperia, is also a good example. Her default outfit is an armored bikini, in spite of the fact that, when you first encounter her, she wears a full suit of armor. Other times, you may simply see armor in the likeness of a boob plate. This is prevalent in Hollywood, too, where the armor fits over a female warrior's chest in such a way that it appears almost melded to her skin. Valkyrie from Thor Ragnarok and Hope Van Dyne from Ant-Man and the Wasp each have boob armor. Mercy and Zarya from the Activision Blizzard game Overwatch both have armor in their standard skins that conforms to the shapes of their breasts. Plenty of examples of this exist in the Final Fantasy series, as well as World of Warcraft. Part of the problem with this is that the armor is impractical. Protective equipment is meant to draw physical blows away from the chest and away from vital organs. Therefore, breastplates will be curved to deflect blows away from the metal that weapons want to pierce. Boob armor, in contrast, frequently has a groove that arcs down over the sternum in order to emphasize the shapes of both breasts separately, similar in aesthetic function to cod pieces from ancient times. This divot in practice would result in the force of any physical blow to the breastplate being focused into this concave seam. This would possibly crack the sternum. If the armor doesn't separate the breasts, then there is still a seam that curves beneath the breasts, which will behave in the same way and result in the cracking of ribs. Therefore, this armor actually provides the opposite function to wearing armor in the first place. Plenty of female characters also go into battle in high heels. Mercy, Widowmaker, and Symmetra from Overwatch are examples of characters who do this. So does Bayonetta in her own franchise and in Smash. Sarah Kerrigan from StarCraft has stiletto heels when she transforms into the alien Zerg Queen of Blades. Multiple characters wear them in Final Fantasy, as well as skimpy armor, and in Mortal Kombat, too. The common argument in support of these characterizations and appearances is that video games are works of fiction. But this argument doesn't hold water. The problem isn't sexualization as a whole, but the sexualization of one group of people consistently and without applying the same standard to other groups. What also matters is agency, or the perception that the character has control over her appearance as it relates to her character. Yes, one of my participants told me a funny story. She was playing, I believe it was Fallout, and she got an item that was a skimpy piece of lingerie, but it was a skimpy piece of lingerie for both the male and the female character. So when you put it on the male character, I think she said it was a leopard print Speedo. And she actually really enjoyed that because she didn't object to sexualization as a rule. She objected to when it was only applied to female characters. So that's another instance of how representations could be changed to be more inclusive. So how much of that is the influence of a development team that is primarily male? So there are a lot of factors, and that's definitely one of them. Video games have a long history since the 1980s, approximately. 
recently of assuming that most gamers are men. And this has created kind of a self-perpetuating cycle where players who are not men tend to speak up less, so they get counted less frequently, people don't pay attention to them. The idea that games are for men has resulted in a lot of masculine-targeted content, which then brings in more male gamers who then love games and want to be developers. And so all of those things have made kind of numerous areas of gaming more accessible to men than to women. So it's not just development, it's also play in game communities. And then, of course, these feed into development as players grow up and join the industry. That was Professor Amanda Cody of the University of Oregon. In 2012, Activision Blizzard executive Dustin Bowder came under fire for a dismissive response he gave to an interviewer's question about the sexualized designs of female characters in the multiplayer online battle arena, or MOBA, Heroes of the Storm in 2015. Heroes of the Storm brings in characters from several Blizzard games to fight for a collective goal. When pressed about these designs, Bowder said, quote, We're not running for president. We're not sending a message. No one should look to our game for that. End quote. Later, he apologized for these remarks on the Heroes of the Storm forums. Quote, In a recent interview with Rock Paper Shotgun, I responded poorly to a statement the interviewer made about over-sexualized character designs in games. I want to apologize for that. This is a serious topic, and I don't want anyone to think that I, or anyone else at Blizzard, is insensitive about how we portray our characters." End quote. In the next episode, I will discuss the representation of women in the game development environment, and how that has impacted the games produced. In addition, I will discuss the obstacles women in the gaming industry have faced, including Gamergate. You've been listening to Girls Got Game. I'm Riley Fitz. Take care and see you next time. You're listening to Girls Got Game. This podcast was developed as an undergraduate thesis by Riley Fitz. For sources consulted, please check out my SoundCloud page.